You're listening to TIP. Hi there. I'm really happy to introduce today's guest, John Spears. John is a great investor who spent 48 years working at an iconic investment firm called Tweedy Brown. This is a company with an incredibly rich history. It's been at the epicenter of the value investing world for as long as anyone can remember. Ben Graham, the patron saint of value investing, used to place his stock trades through Tweedy Brown as far back as the 1930s. Graham's most famous disciple, Warren Buffett, actually bought his stake in Berkshire Hathaway through Tweedy Brown in the 1960s, back when Tweedy was a broker and Berkshire was still a small, struggling business that owned an ailing textile mill. John's obsession with the stock market goes back a long way. He bought his first stock when he was only 12 years old. As a teenager, he taught himself accounting and finance, and he was in such a hurry to become a professional investor that he dropped out of college and went to work full-time on Wall Street when he was only 20. These days, John is a managing director at Tweedy Brown. He's also part of the investment committee that runs the company's flagship international value fund. The fund has crushed the MSCI IFA index by something like 600 percentage points over the last 29 years. When you see that level of long-term outperformance over three decades, I think you want to pay serious attention and ask yourself, what have these people figured out about what works over time? As a lifelong student of the stock market, John has thought very deeply about this question of which investment strategies work best in the long run. He's also done a lot of empirical research on the subject. His studies have led him to be a staunch believer in the enduring wisdom of buying stocks for much less than they're worth and hunting for bargains internationally. He's also a great believer in investing in companies where the top executives have been buying their own stock. As you'll hear in this conversation, he believes that cheap stocks with heavy insider buying may be the single best pond in which to fish. But the reason I'm particularly delighted to bring you this interview is that John isn't just a terrific investor, he's also a terrific human being. I first interviewed him in 2015. Back then, I spent several hours with him at his farmhouse in rural New Jersey, and I was really struck both then and now by what an affable and modest and good-humoured person he is. There are plenty of great investors who are brilliant at making pots of money, but maybe less successful in other areas of life. John seems different to me. As I see it, he stands out as an unusually happy and likable and well-adjusted person who's extremely comfortable in his own skin. So in this conversation, we talk in some depth not only about what works in markets, but about what works in life, and in particular, how to construct a truly happy and fulfilling life. Thanks so much for joining us. You're listening to The Richer, Wiser, Happier podcast, where your host, William Green, interviews the world's greatest investors and explores how to win in markets and life. Hi, folks. I'm really delighted to be here with today's guest, John Spears, who spent almost half a century at the heart of one of the great investment firms, Tweedy Brown. John, it's lovely to see you again. Thank you so much for joining us. Good to see you, William. 
It's been, I, a, been too many years since it we has, last met. I think it may be about seven years since I came to visit you in New Jersey and spent the day in, in your beautiful farmhouse there, I guess. It was a, it was a, a memorable right. experience. I'm happy to be right. with you again. Right. We sat in the barn and had nice chat, nice lunch. Exactly. Exactly. It was a great day. So I wanted to start by asking you how you came to be so fascinated by the stock market at a very young age. And if I remember correctly, you ended up buying your first stock when you were about 12 years old. That's correct. It began with a, a tendency toward lassitude. Huh. <laughs> I had always been a worker as a kid. I was just kind of a worker. I had a lot of energy. And uh, one of my ways of working was to pull uh, work in gardens, pulling weeds. And the pay at that time was 50 cents an hour, which might be $3 an hour an hour, something like that in today's dollars. And that was work done in the summer. It was hot work, sticky, get your hands dirty. And I had the good fortune of having my grandfather within a, a bike ride away in the town that we lived in, Oaklawn, Illinois. And my, my grandfather was an investor. He bought dividend paying, typically large sort of blue chip type companies. And uh, he looked at the financial pages every day. And I was fascinated with all the numbers. What's an eighth mean? What's a quarter mean? What's the monetary equivalent of those figures? And it just struck me that it's pretty amazing you could make money uh, with money without doing all this work outside. And you could, uh, you could do it in an air-conditioned office. So it was really a tendency toward that kind of uh, laziness <laughs> or maybe just seeing a more efficient and, and more delightful way to spend one's time. Yeah, because so you, you were very entrepreneurial, was, right? I mean, I, I remember you telling me that you delivered newspapers at 10. You, you, I think you built and rented out a hammock in your backyard. That, that is correct. Yeah, it was. I, I, I sold it as a space ride in the hammock. I sold that as a nickel, a nickel ride. There was a magazine, I don't know whether it's still around, titled Boy's Life. Might have been associated with Boy Scouts or Cub Scouts, something like that. And uh, they had money-making schemes, including selling door-to-door engraved Christmas cards, custom-engraved Christmas cards. And I did, I did that. And uh, it was fairly easy to do because the houses were close together. They were, it was not a, a wealthy uh, area with large lots and that, that kind of thing. So, yeah, I was just kind of doing these things to make money. You told me once that you sold Coca-Cola on construction sites that you would mark up. That's right. When we moved to Gladwin, Pennsylvania, outside of Philadelphia, there was there was a fair amount of construction going on in the summer. And, and I would keep track of it and bring cold Cokes and mark them up, double them up and sell them. That was one of the schemes. Yeah. But so, also, I'm not sure whether this is a question you were going, going to ask, but I had kind of an entrepreneurial breakthrough in high school. Continuing with this Christmas card business, I learned about fancy, expensive Christmas cards that were sold in stationary departments of department stores, such as John Wanamaker or Strawbridge and Clothier in the Philadelphia area. And they were heavy, heavy sample books. And I got in touch with these Christmas card companies and got the right to sell the, their product in the main line of Philadelphia. And Problem with it is that all the houses were on at least two acre lots. So you had to walk around carrying these heavy books door to door to try to make some sales. But I had this thought, I had I became aware of something called a reverse telephone directory, which 
street by street, door by door, gives you the, the telephone number of each house, name, address, telephone number. So I thought, well, maybe I could come up with a little advertisement, a flyer that I could send door to door by street. And then I could call in advance house to house and arrange for appointments to see these Christmas card sample books. And then the flyer that I created had a little picture of myself so that it would delay any fears of, of a, a robber. They could see this kid. And it was kind of cute. I had a, an old beat up Volkswagen bug and I had little, little hippie uh, sunflowers on it. And uh, anyway, I found out that I could call door to door. And about a fifth of the telephone calls resulted in an, an appointment to drop off the sample books. And if they made a decision by the next day, they got what I call the quick deciders discount. They'd get 20% off. And doing that was quite successful. I guess in today's dollars, maybe maybe making over $40,000, just part-time work doing this uh, while still in high school. So I mean, the head of the local branch, the bank branch of uh, Provident National Bank, who took an interest in all this cash and checks I was depositing and invited me out to lunch. It was great. So that was an interesting entrepreneurial thing that was kind of a a little bit of a doing some research to try to get around a a hurdle, a twist. And you were always very frugal, right? So you'd been saving money from all of these jobs. And then you'd started to invest in the stock market at the age of about 12. And if I remember rightly, your your first two stocks were British Petroleum and Allside Corp, which I think was a made aluminum siding. Can you give us a sense of what you learned from those early adventures in the stock market? Well, the first one was a joy, British Petroleum. I think I invested $250, $300 in that stock, and it went up about 50% in a short period of time. I thought, this is great. Now, this was a stock that was just... uh, it was recommended to me by a broker. I said, okay, I'll do this. Sounds okay. There was no independent research, but it was just buying a piece of paper. I didn't know that much about British Petroleum. Anyway, it was easy money. So it's great. But then he recommended this All Sides company, which sounded so interesting. All Side was aluminum siding, but they also were going into a new business of making prefab manufactured homes. And they were architecturally, very contemporary. I liked how they looked. And uh, so I bought some of the all side and went down 50%, lost half my money in that stock. And uh, it was a, an awakening that I really did not have a clue about what I was doing. And you can lose money in stocks too. So I started uh, trying to repair my lack of knowledge by going to the library frequently and uh, sort of one at a time taking out books on, on investing. Why do you think it fascinated you so much? Was it really that you sort of were rapaciously capitalistic and wanted to get super rich? Or what was motivating you to do all of these ventures and to invest? I think it was sort of a a money gene or or an avarice gene, (laughs) get rich gene. I just just thought it was, I don't know, I was just just interested in it uh, from an early age. Yeah. And you didn't. I mean, I, I mean, I've read I've read about Warren Buffett's early age, and he he was he was that way. With uh, I think uh, he'd go to barber shops and he'd install a gumball machine or something, which takes coins, and you you get a get a piece of candy, piece of gum, and and he'd go around and collect the coins. And he did some of these things that uh, struck me as interesting. 
He said that, that it often has been the case that people who made money did things at an early age that were sort of independent, entrepreneurial in a very small scale way. But I mean, I remember reading about uh, uh, Joseph Kennedy. I think he, as a teenager, might have rented a bus and had a, like a little bus company. Yeah, and you were reading all about these people like John Paul Getty and Charles Allen was another character who now most people wouldn't be able to identify, but he played a really important role in your life. Can you talk yes. about how you how you went from reading about him at the age of 14 or 15 when there was sure. an article about him in time to actually uh, having him set you on a particular path that I think really quite profoundly affected the course of your life? Indeed, indeed. I read about Charles Allen in an issue of Time magazine, the business section, that uh, he was kind of in the Forbes 400 type thing before there was a Forbes 400. But he was worth, this would have been in the 60s, he was worth about $500 million. He had started with nothing. He was a runner on Wall Street. He started his own firm. And by the time he was, he was 29, he was a millionaire. And then he lost, I guess he lost all of his money in the stock market crash around 29, 30s. Then he made it back. But it was his story in Time Magazine described the diversity of businesses that he had invested in, the different kinds of stocks, including some venture capital type things. And it just sounded very, very interesting to me. And the author of the article described Charlie Allen as having a feel for stocks. I think he used exactly those words. So I was just fascinated by this man. And I wanted to see if he'd be willing to meet with me and describe his feel for stocks and maybe give me some advice on, on how to be an investor. And I wrote him a letter. And maybe in a, a month later, I received a reply and he invited me to come to his office in uh, New York City. And I took some time off from school and uh, not with permission. It should be it should be <laughs> emphasized, right? You you with, played hooky, right? Yeah, I played hooky. Yes, without permission. <laughs> so I wanted I had my priorities set. <laughs> yeah. So I went up to New York on the Amtrak train and spent about forty five minutes with Mister Allen and uh, asked him to describe his feel for stocks, his feel for investing. That uh, Time Magazine had described as almost magical. Yeah. How do you get that? And he said, it's just a feeling when you know you're right. When you've got sort of conviction, you're comfortable, you're right. And then he gave me advice on educational path forward. He said that, you know, accounting, finance, accounting is the language of business. You should know everyone who's an investor should know accounting. And he recommended a course that was taught at the New York Institute of Finance on security analysis. And it was a correspondence course. So I immediately signed up for this. And it happened to be based on the book Security Analysis by Benjamin Graham, uh, Dodd, and uh, Cottle. And um, the book was originally, as you know, I think published in uh, 1934 or so, um, first edition. And uh, anyway, I just started going chapter by chapter, and there were accounting lessons as well with the book. And I'd send in my my answers to questions, assignments, and get a grade back and then do it again. And it was very, very useful. I really uh, started with what's considered to be the, the hard book, the Bible of investing. And uh, he has a section, he has a part of the book on balance sheet analysis. And I 
came to the conclusion that uh, you could buy bargains in the stock market. You could buy a company, even a company that has more cash net of debt per share than the stock price. So I'd, I'd also seen some research on stocks that had the biggest percentage moves, and they tended to be lower price stocks. So I thought that I would try to find stocks at $5 a share or less that uh, were selling below their net cash. So in theory, if you and I could buy the whole company, we could uh, we'd get our money back from the cash in the balance sheet in the till, and then we'd have the the sales space, the earnings space, the uh, property plant equipment, goodwill for free. That seemed like a good deal. So, so I started doing that, and those initial investments with that basic framework in mind worked out extremely well. And I was not a diversified investor at that time. I didn't know know much about that. But my first few bets were good, and a thousand dollars became worth about ten thousand, or I don't know what that is today in today's dollars. Probably what seventy five grand, hundred, yeah, grand? something I mean, like r- that. Real yeah. money for a high school yes. kid. Yes, and it was then a lot you, of money. I, I felt rich. Yeah, yeah. And then John, I remember you telling me when when we met last time that you then had a disastrous investment where you it sort was, of strayed from this absolutely. new framework. Yeah. Could it you was stu- talk it was about bad. that? What happened? Because it sounds like well, that had a huge impact on you. It did. It did. At that time, there were a number of, of companies, conglomerates, companies that would own different businesses. And, and a number of them had been formed using sort of a shell corporation that had a tax loss carry forward benefit i.e. that the whole idea was if you bought a profitable tax-paying business through this corporate entity that had a large tax loss carry forward, you could shelter the pre-tax income of the business that you acquired. You pay no no income tax on it. And at that time, the corporate tax rate was around 50%. So you sort of have, assuming it was a cash generative business where the, the cash flow was equal to the earnings, you'd You'd have double the earnings that you could get your hands on in, in cash flow. So there were a number of companies that built conglomerate businesses through acquisitions. And I happened to stumble across a company called Paul Hardeman Company, which had an enormous tax loss carry forward. I forget what it was per share, but it was a big number in relationship to the stock price. The stock price might have been three bucks or something like that. And I thought I was just going to get fabulously rich buying this thing. At three, it would, you know, they they build some empire buying companies, and I went and, and went up to New York and met with a, a lawyer who had bought control of this company with the large tax loss carry forward. And anyway, I recommended that my father buy it, and I tried to borrow money from one of my father's friends who always took an interest in me and was a frugal guy who invested in stocks and and owned real estate also and a farm or two. Uh, out in Ohio. Anyway, this guy thankfully did not lend me any money, and he wrote me a very kind letter <laughs> talking about the you know the disadvantages of uh, borrowing money to buy things, and you know being better to be prudent and careful. And anyway, I didn't follow his advice. <laughs> I mean, no one would lend me any money, which was a blessing. And so that stock crashed. It just was terrible. It pretty much wiped out most of the. Ten thousand dollars that uh, my investing had had built, and so I, I, I mean, it was a punch in the face at an early age. Better than than at age seventy four. I don't, I don't want to go there. But your dad lost three or four thousand bucks as well, he did. right? And so he that did. that must have been pretty excruciating, presumably. 
it was excruciating. It was awful. It was uh, humbling. And he was not a rich man. I mean, he'd been, uh, I mean, he became relatively successful. He was affluent, but he was not a a rich man. And I I was sort of surprised years later when he invested $50,000 of his pension profit sharing, his IRA with uh, Tweedy Brown. And uh, fortunately, it was a very successful investment. He made, you know, it allowed my parents to retire very, very nicely. So to go back to this company that turned to dust, what did it teach you, in a sense, about reaffirming your faith in the principles of Ben Graham and the margin of safety? How did it affect your rediscovery of your faith in Ben Graham? Sure, sure. Well, obviously, if you had looked at the the balance sheet of uh, Paul Hardiman Company, really it didn't have much. I, I don't know whether it had much debt. I don't recall. But it was basically... The tax loss carry forward. There was not a this kind of a more esoteric asset than actual cash, buildings, accounts receivable, profitable business, profitable sales base, those kinds of things. It just did not have that. And I had made money in those kinds of stocks. I understood them. I understood the theory of doing it, the model. It all made sense to me. It seemed like it offered. A margin of safety. I used to think that uh, you know you'd you'd find something that didn't have much leverage, and you'd you'd figure out that the real value of the business, if it was sold, if you if you acquired it or if a competitor acquired it, the likely price that the business would go for, you could buy into some companies at half that, and really their financial capacity, what a leverage buyout firm could do in acquiring that. They could finance more than the stock price per share. They could borrow, go to a bank and borrow more than the stock price per share. Those kinds of things made sense to me. It was sort of like a, a bond or a bond. You had bond capacity or financing capacity of the business that was more than the stock price. So in a theoretical see-through way, you were kind of like buying a bond, but you didn't have uh, a maturity date. You didn't have regular interest payments, but you had that margin of safety based on the price that you were buying, the, the price that you were getting into the enterprise in that was equivalent to the margin of safety that a bond on that company would have. I don't know whether that's at all clear, but that was the idea. Uh, anyway. Our audience is much smaller than I am with these things, so they'll, they'll understand even <laughs> oh, the things no. that I don't, no, John. So no. I, I'd say you're, you're an A++ questioner. <laughs> uh, thank you. So you then went off and you spent a couple of years studying finance and accounting at colleges like the Babson Institute of Business Administration and Drexel Institute of Technology. And I think you spent some time going to Wharton trying to avoid getting drafted in Vietnam, which I think is very wise indeed. And then you dropped out and much to your parents' dismay. And I'm wondering how come? Why, Why did you decide that you didn't want to complete your college education? And did you ever regret not having a college degree? Well, I think the answer, I think it's, I was really just interested. I was so focused in a way on pursuing this investing course that uh, I just didn't want to take the time to study all the other things. And also, I had a kind of a, a weird way of looking at things as a result of studying people that had become successful in business and had become wealthy. Uh, many of them were immigrants. Many of them were college dropouts. Some, In some instances, even High school dropouts. Thank God my parents didn't allow me to do that. Would you have dropped out of high school if they had allowed you? 
I was kind of inclined to do that for a while, but thank God I did not do that. But anyway, so I was determined to learn these, learn accounting and finance and somehow make money and get in business. And my parents, uh, when I first dropped out of out of Babson after nine months at the school, I'd been getting A's and B's. I was, I was doing fine, but I just I just felt twitchy. I had this energy to to get into business, do something. You were a man in a hurry. And I was in a hurry. I was in a hurry. And my mother, my mother, you know, said, uh, Johnny, do you want to pump gas the rest of your life? She was just very, very upset about it. But it turned out that they had a very, very uh, luxurious retirement as a result of investing with, with Tweety Brown. And it's interesting because you strike me as a very scholarly and bookish guy. I know how much you love your books. I, I remember seeing your absolutely gorgeous library in your house in New Jersey. And it just strikes me that you're a very independent learner and thinker. And so probably in a way, the characteristic that led you to leave college and just be studying on your own at a maniacal pace, it's probably pretty integral to your success, right? That kind of personality. I think that's right. Yeah. Uh, yeah independent learner independent learner. I think I learned better through reading than through, for example, going to a long lecture course. So I just found it to my liking to be an independent student. I'm still an independent student of investing. I still read read investing-related books. I've, I read academic studies about different stock market approaches, such as copying insiders or buying into companies that have bought back their own stock. And I'm still doing today empirical work right now on copycatting uh, C-suite or top executive insider trades for companies not only in the United States, but throughout the world. And it's, it's interesting. They tend to beat the market. I've been following some of what you've written and said of, on this subject. We'll come back, I hope, to this idea of empirical research later because it's very distinctive to Tweedy Brown. But tell us quickly, like, what does it show you when you follow what the president or the CFO or the COO or the treasurer or whatever, what they do in terms of their own investments in their company? On average, if you bought all of the ones that they bought over time, you tended to beat the market. And uh, the market is, was defined as the S&P 500. In the study that I did or the firm did using the U.S. market uh, as the uh, universe and using uh, companies with at least a $500 million inflation-adjusted market capitalization. So they were mostly bigger companies, the kinds of companies that other academics said insiders don't, don't tend to do that well. If a big company, uh, you know, efficient market theory and all that. Well, what we found studying the U.S. market is that insiders, C-suite insiders, top executive insiders, such as the CEO, president, treasurer, chief financial officer, chairman of the board, they tended to beat the market by a much greater amount when they were buying value stocks, when they were buying stocks that if you ranked stocks on price earnings ratios, if you rank the, the top executive, you have a universe of their only top executive purchases, then you rank all those stocks on price earnings ratios and, and sort them into deciles. The cheapest stocks on PE ratio tended to have the best excess return, the best alpha, you know, more than 10 percentage points on average. But that doesn't mean that any librarian or that we can just assume that all of those stocks 
work. They don't. I mean, I uh, I think with our U.S. study, 75% of the stocks that were in the cheapest two deciles of price earnings ratio had some gain, but 25% had absolute losses. And then of the whole universe, 65% of the stocks that were in the cheapest two deciles of price earnings ratio beat the market, had exceeded the S&P 500 by more than 10 percentage points. So those are fabulous results, but, the, but there's definitely statistics, there's skewness, you know, you don't have every, all of them winning. And you have some very, very, you know, you might have in that sample, something with a 400% return, and then something with a 80% loss. So it's not nirvana, but it's pretty damn interesting. And it's a powerful enough signal that it, it's presumably very powerful for you as an idea generator. And then if you can combine this kind of tracking of C-suite insider buying with stocks being cheap, it's presumably a pretty good pond to be fishing in for you. Exactly. Indeed. Indeed. I think it's, I think it's, I think it's the best pond. That's interesting. And it's interesting, it goes back in a way to Ben Graham, who also found these statistical, empirical ways of looking at the market where you could say, well, on average, I'm going to do pretty well if I fish in this type of pond. Indeed. He was sort of a quant. I mean, he'd talk about buying a group, a basket of stocks selling below current assets, net of all liabilities senior to the common stock, and also including the deduction of preferred stock. And if you could buy those, it's two-thirds of that net-net current asset value, you tended to make money. And uh, he did. I mean, it made a lot of sense to him. He didn't really study each company that carefully, uh, but it tended to work. And we've done, we've done that sort of thing too, especially in our early days when we manage less money. Can we go back to those early days? Because to resume our story of the young John Spears in a hurry, you trained as a stockbroker in New York City, I think, back when you were about 20 and then worked for a couple of brokerages. And then when you were maybe even 22, set up your own investment partnership with about $30,000 from about four people and a few thousand of your own, and then drove a limousine at night. Can you talk a bit about what that period was like for you when you were just starting out and you were figuring out the game and you were applying this Ben Graham type style of investing at a time when really almost nobody else had got that religion? It was indeed a time of the nifty 50 stocks where companies like Avon would sell at 80, 90, 100 times earnings, Polaroid, et cetera. These, these stocks that were had great track records, they would keep growing forever and people, major bank trust companies all own these same stocks. And anyway, none of that made sense to me. I just thought that the opportunities buying bargains, I could, I could understand it. It made sense to me. But going back, I was very fortunate to join uh, Hornbillar and Weeks Hemp Hill Noise, a New York Stock Exchange member firm with an office uh, in Philadelphia in their stockbroker training program. They looked at my kind of quirky background, my educational background and, and backgrounds is developing this little business, selling Christmas cards and things like that. And they, I guess, you know, obviously they decide they take a chance on this weirdo. And uh, so you had to be at age 21 to legally be a registered representative, to be a stockbroker. So I took the test. I was the youngest person to ever take the New York Stock Exchange registered representative test. 
And uh, I waited around for a while. And at age 21, they gave me a desk and a phone and said, go out and cold call and meet people that had money and make a lot of commissions. And you can get part of the commission and we'll get part. Uh, So I started trying to do that. And I was just so young. Most of the people with money have accumulated money as they've aged. So I was I was trying to meet owners of businesses that might be 50 or 60 years old. And I was frugal. I tell you, one a few times I, I took people out to lunch and I was just so dumb. I waited until hopefully they would pick up the check. Not right. I mean, just ridiculous. Anyway, I did meet a few people and I explained uh, my value-oriented approach. And I found a stock that was a closed-end investment company. I think it was called the Abacus Fund that was selling at about 66% of its cash and securities. And I got a number of them, my few clients, into that stock. It eventually worked out just fine. I think it eventually was taken over by maybe Payne Weber Company in a deal. All the shareholders got book value. But anyway, I was not a very successful salesperson. And I did not like these kind of, to me, seemed like a high pressure sales organization where they had a, a chart that was like a horse race and they'd show the broker with the, who was leading in the horse race with the, the highest commissions. And at that time, there could be secondary offerings where the insiders were selling their own shares and they, the commission on placing those shares with your clients was a higher percentage commission than what you would get buying 100 shares of General Motors, et cetera. I didn't, it just didn't smell right to me. I didn't feel very comfortable with that. So after about nine months, I decided this just was not for me. And I probably would have been fired if I had not uh, decided that it was not my cup of tea. I remember you saying that you had this image of your local doctor, Dr. Woodruff, who cared for his yeah. patients and helped them. And, and that you, in a way, rather than being a hustler trying to get commissions, you kind of you wanted to be a bit more like him, but in a financial environment. Yes, yes. I like the idea of having a community of interest, of helping, of helping people with their finances, with helping people become more prosperous, wealthier. And uh, yeah, he was a, a great example. He was a, he was a kind, caring man. And uh, so I, I admired that. I, I, I wanted to have that sort of a reputation. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Don't just ride the index. Seek to outperform it with Fidelity Active ETFs. Learn more at fidelity.com slash active ETFs. Before investing in any exchange-traded fund, you should consider its investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Contact Fidelity for a prospectus, an offering circular, or if available, a summary prospectus containing this information. Read it carefully. While active ETFs offer the potential to outperform an index, these products may more significantly trail an index as compared with passive ETFs. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC, member NYSE, SIPC. Our friends at Coriant provide wealth management services centered around you. Coriant's goal is to exceed your expectations and simplify your life. Coriant has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. They are one of the largest integrated fee-only U.S. registered investment advisors, and Coriant has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. They have extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. The teams at Coriant put the collective power of their expertise into building you the custom wealth, investment, 
and family office solutions that can help you reach your holistic financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, speak with an advisor today at Corient.com. That's spelled C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. That's Corient.com. When Rain Wilson had a great idea, he turned to AT&T Business. They assured him no matter how out there his idea may be, they had his back. So we came up with this, a talking pillow designed to put you to sleep, backed by a reliable network and the only network with built-in security controls. And thus, Sleep With Rain was a hit. Take your business to the next level at business.att.com. That's business.att.com. All right, back to the show. And then you met one of these other outlier figures in those early days as an investor who was Bill Ruane, who was a great friend of Buffett's. And Ruane also, who was a very kind and caring bloke, um, then introduced you to Tweedy Brown. So you started at Tweedy Brown in 1974. For people who are listening who don't really know what an extraordinary and historic firm this is, it was founded, I think, in 1920. Can you talk a bit about the connection that it had with Ben Graham, the connection that it had with Warren Buffett, the connection that it had with Walter Schloss? I mean, this is kind of ground zero for the value investing community. And you were there at a time when it was a tiny firm managing, I think, about $8 million. So I'd love to get a sense of, of what it was like and what the history of this firm was within the value investing community. Sure, sure. The firm was founded in 1920 by Forrest Tweedy, uh, who was a real character. And uh, he would go to uh, the stockholders meeting of some very closely held companies that traded in the over-the-counter market. It traded the people who were not my age. Stocks used to trade just by phone calls between different brokers, market makers. And uh, Forrest Tweedy developed a business of market making in a mail order way. He'd, he'd go to Smith's Man- Manufacturing, he'd learn, he'd learn, he'd get a copy of the shareholders list and he'd, he'd send out postcards saying, I'm willing to buy shares of Smith Manufacturing at $10 a share. If you want to buy Smith Manufacturing for me at $11 a share, I'll sell them to you. So he, he did this kind of thing. And it was, a, I guess, a prosperous enough little business. And he added as uh, one of his, his partners in the business, Howard Brown, the father of, of my two longstanding partners, deceased partner, Chris Brown, and my current partner, Will Brown. And Howard was just a great guy. And he made markets in the pink sheet stocks. He was really sort of a, a step above Mr. Tweedy. And it turned out that Benjamin Graham had his office in the same building. And at that time, stocks were not trade, were not, the ownership was not transferred through the depository trust company. It was transferred through actual delivery of share certificates from one office to another. And then people would put those certificates in a vault. And uh, so I think there was a convenience factor that uh, Ben Graham could place orders to buy and sell stocks uh, with Howard Brown at, at Tweedy Brown. And uh, that was an, an original connection as far as, as I recall the history. And of course, Warren Buffett was working as a 20-some-year-old as an analyst for Benjamin Graham, Graham Newman Corporation, which was sort of an early 
early kind of a hedge fund or an incentive. Somehow the the, the uh, Graham Newman fund was a percentage of the gain kind of a deal like current hedge fund structure. So Warren was working there. Tom Knapp, one of my deceased partners, also worked side by side with Warren Buffett. And so did uh, Walter Schloss. And um, when um, Warren decided that he didn't want to live in New York City, he wanted to work in in Omaha. He uh, stayed in touch with Ben Graham, certainly with Ben Graham, but with Tom Knapp and another one of my partners, Ed Anderson, who has also passed away. Ed knew Warren through working for Charlie Munger for a few years out in California. And uh, so that's how Ed came to, uh, to Tweety Brown. It wasn't how Howard, the broker who even helped Warren. T- tell was, us the story. It's so remarkable. Sure, sure. He, Howard was well regarded by Warren Buffett as uh, a person who could keep a secret, a person who was very, very trustworthy. And Howard was a, a wonderful person, but a person of, of fewer words than many people. He was a, he was a bridge player, too. He was a he could remember lots of things very, very quickly. And, and so he was very good at this game of this business of accumulating shares and companies and being very quiet about it. And uh, so Warren trusted him. And uh, so nearly all of the, maybe all of it, maybe all the shares of Berkshire Hathaway that Warren Buffett owns were accumulated using Tweety Brown as the broker. And we we used to keep track of the transactions before computers by writing down every transaction on a card. So we had our our card for uh, Warren Buffett, Berkshire, and Berkshire Hathaway bought 100 shares at this price, this price. And uh, I think one time we joked, well, Warren, we'll send you back the, the transaction cards if, you, if you, you send us back the shares. And just to we- clarify for our listeners, this is back when Berkshire Hathaway, this is in the 1960s, when this was an old textile mill in Massachusetts. Yes. And so- right. So this was a, a pretty lousy investment in some ways. There was a cigar butt that he was buying incredibly cheap. But then right. because he was the greatest investor of all time, proceeded to turn it into, you know, one of the great success stories in yep. investment Indeed. history. Indeed. I think he was I think he might have been paying ten dollars a share or something for for his stock in, in Berkshire Hathaway. Yeah. Another yeah. legendary character that you had in the office who you mentioned previously was Walter Schloss, who again, some people in our audience won't realize just what a legendary figure he was, but he was also wonderfully eccentric. Can you talk a bit about Walter Schloss? Well, Walter also was an employee of, uh, he was an investment analyst working for Benjamin Graham at the same time as Warren and uh, Tom Knapp. And uh, Walter had great energy. He'd kind of run up and down the hallways and stuff. He'd run to the trading desk and uh, he's a very frugal man, very uh, lived very, very below his means. And he had office space in Tweedy Brown. Uh, and we didn't charge him. We didn't charge him any rent. But he had essentially in the early days, he had an office about the size of a of a closet. And in fact, Chris Brown used to talk about the, the water cooler was in the closet beyond Walter's uh, chair and desk. So to get to the water cooler, Walter would have to push his chair in so he could get but uh, he was a very interesting investor. He stuck to his knitting. He always bought stocks below net working capital or at or below tangible book value. He felt very comfortable with that approach. To the best of my knowledge, he never really interviewed managements. He would look in value line or maybe maybe look in the 
Moody's manuals, S&P manuals for cheap stocks. And uh, he was quirky about his diversification. He would own a lot of stocks. He might own 100 stocks, but if he found one that would decline from its original price, he would often just keep buying and buying and averaging down his cost. And I learned at one time, there was one stock he owned, Hudson Pulp Company, which was a papermaking company and also owned Timberland, et cetera. And it was a controlled company. You couldn't uh, buy control in the open market, couldn't tender for it or anything like that. So it was not a place, it was not a kind of a stock that an activist might stir things up with. But I learned that he had about 25% of his, his investment partnership in uh, Hudson Pulp. Mm-hmm. And I just, uh, he had a kind of a diverse, a bunch of little things over here. And then this barbell over here with Hudson Pulp. So I, he, had, he had courage to do that. But I wouldn't do that with my net worth. So you, in a way, were really at the heart of the value investing community, right? You had partners well, I don't, like- I don't know about that. Well, <laughs> well, but physically, you were at the center of this ecosystem, right? You had yes. Tom Knapp was a colleague who'd taken Ben Graham's course at Columbia with Buffett and then worked for him and then joined Tweedy Brown. You had Howard Brown trading, helping Buffett. You had uh, ben Graham is using the firm as a broker of him in the 30s, 40s, and 50s. You right. were meeting people like Bill Ruin. So you were, you were kind of, you were all part of this church of Ben Graham. And in a way, Graham has really defined your entire career over the last almost 50 years now that you've been at Tweedy Brown. What was the essence of the idea that you took and obviously adapted and, and you evolved it over the years by studying Buffett and then adding your own twist to it? But what's the essence of what you took from Graham that has turned out over the last half century to be incredibly robust? Well, I think it has been the, the, just the whole idea of valuation of a business and that the valuations, real world valuations can be much higher than stock market valuations. You know, a transaction, 100 shares of some stock at a price is not necessarily representative of the value of the entire company, yet companies are valued through these quotations, through fractional ownership interests in real businesses uh, are, are taken as serious. Whereas to us, the real serious value is the value, let's say an acquisition value or a liquidation value, or the, the highest and best value for a particular company. And for us these days, mostly it's uh, it's using comparables, using acquisition comparables, doing investment banking type appraisals of businesses. This is what a you know a cement manufacturer look at cement manufacturing acquisition deals and look at multiples of and you know enterprise value to earnings before interest and taxes, EV to EBIT or enterprise value to earnings before interest, taxes, depreciation, and amortization, EBITDA. So those are, those are you know that they're really two prices. There's the price of the, the business, and that that would be a multi million dollar transaction price, a very serious price. And then there are these little ditzy hundred shares at a time, you know, that people take seriously. And uh, so we having this independent figure in mind when buying a stock and deciding when to sell it has been enormously useful and has kept us away from uh, some of the emotional behavioral aspects of, of investing. If you don't have that and your stock is going down, you could get into a tizzy. <laughs> you could be quite nervous. 
but you're more at ease, you're more at peace with a with some knowledge that your business is likely to be uh, worth a lot more than what you've paid for it. So in in many ways you've evolved the way of measuring value way beyond what Ben Graham might have done back in those days, but still it's all centered on exploiting the discrepancy between price and value. Yes indeed, yes indeed. I would say that Benjamin Graham appreciated qualitative factors that can determine the earning power and the valuation of a business. But in in his books, Security Analysis or The Intelligent Investor, he didn't really go into how to assess qualitative factors. He was much more quantitative. And and when he wrote the books that he wrote, it was much more of of an asset-based business economy. So tangible book value was a very important measure in working capital. And, and uh, we learned, we've learned a lot from reading Warren Buffett, from reading what Charlie Munger has, has said and written about qualitative factors. So we use that. We, we graduated from being an investor in net current asset stocks to, I think, our first more of an earnings-based stock was a Cran company that Chris Brown and I discussed uh, called Binney and Smith, which was selling at book value. It had no debt, good earnings power. We we're paying a very low, maybe four times earnings. And uh, it was eventually taken over probably a double we'd, what we had paid. But it was a decent business. It was a good business. So we've become much more interested in some characteristics of better businesses, businesses that generate a lot of free cash flow. Etc. But we still will buy things that are deep discount to book type stocks that uh, where we we think that the uh, the net asset the net tangible asset value is real. And I remember in my own case when Morgan Stanley in two thousand around two thousand eight two thousand nine in that period the financial crisis was selling at sixty uh, percent of tangible book value and insiders were buying it. CEO, chief financial officer, and, and uh, directors, other directors were all buying the stock. I bought some with my own account. There, there were great concerns about Morgan Stanley not being able to revolve its financing. And it was, you know, it was wild times for financial businesses at that period. But I thought, well, it's way below tangible book. They've got an investment management business that generates a lot of money that's not an asset intensive business. And uh, so I bought some at t- less than tangible book and at 20, I think it was 10, 20 bucks a share. I had around a 30 tangible book, went to 12, bought some more, uh, not enough. But anyway, that's that's the kind of thing. We own, We bought Jeffrey's Group not too long ago uh, when the CEO bought uh, oh, about 10,000 shares at uh, 17. Book was yeah, around 34. Uh, we'll buy some of these things. It's had an up and Jeffrey's had a kind of a volatile record as, a, as most brokers do. It feels like you're not purists. You're not just looking for amazingly high quality companies at reasonable prices. You'll buy stuff that's really cheap, that's a little ugly. You'll buy stuff that's higher quality. It's sort of different variations on the theme of value investing. Indeed. Indeed. We'll even hold on to some things. I mean, Berkshire Hathaway taught us that, taught me that. You know, I was, I mean, I remember, oh, it's terrible thinking about it, that uh, I would way, way back, decades ago, I would do updates, updated valuations of Berkshire Hathaway. And I, it was really more of a book value type valuation. And I remember 
suggesting to one of our clients who had a lot of a lot of Berkshire Hathaway stock that maybe maybe you should diversify a little bit. And I've I've always regretted that. But it just shows that business growth is important. I mean, obviously, business growth is important. You can own a, a business that's uh, privately held. And if it's generating a lot of cash and if the sales are growing, the earnings are growing, it's a growing asset. So we have a number of things that we bought cheap that we thought had reasonably good growth prospects, uh, comp- good competitive positions. And they're not necessarily that cheap right now, like Heineken, not a doesn't punch you in the face as a bargain. It's probably over 20 times earnings. Uh, Nestle, we've owned a long time. Diageo, the liquor company. So we've got there, we're kind of, you know, riding with the business. So we've got a few of those. High quality compounders. Yes, high quality compounders. Stable stable earners. Yes. Very much Tom Russo type stocks in a way. Yes, yes. Yeah, but he's more, obviously, he's more of a purist. Yeah. Yeah, he just yeah. sticks with that. He wouldn't. He just wouldn't buy the ugly stuff. No, he's not going to buy some stock. Uh, you know, at half a net cash with with a low return on equity and no growth. Yeah. One thing, John, that's very distinctive about Tweedy Brown that we mentioned before is the fact that you do this empirical research, as you were saying, studying insider buying. And one of the seminal research studies that you did as a firm, and then you published a white paper on, was called "What Has Worked in Investing: Studies of Investment Approaches." and characteristics associated with exceptional returns. And I, I was looking at it yesterday, and it's basically, as I understood it, an overview of about 50 academic studies of different investment criteria that have produced really high rates of return. And I'm wondering when you look back now, based on that research and on the performance that you guys have had since you set up the Tweedy Brown International Value Fund, your, your flagship fund back in 1993, which has done very well over almost three decades. What do you now believe all of this research and your own experience shows about what works? Well, I think that in long run, I think it has worked, but it doesn't work all the time. And, and, and our, our approach has not worked all the time. And we certainly, as a value investor in the last few years, the S&P 500 has been incredibly difficult to beat, to add excess return, to add value uh, above what you can get for almost, you can, you, you know, almost no fee to invest in, in uh, these index funds. So eh, it's humbling, but uh, I think that the value approach will continue to work. And certainly the value approach with the added aspect of C-suite top executive insider purchase has worked on average, extremely well in these empirical studies. Whether it will continue to do that, who knows? But uh, so if but we look it at just, it, just makes it just makes sense. And I think it's going back to I think as an investor, it's it, it's very very helpful to do something that makes sense to you to stick to your knitting and 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 do that. So John, looking at, at some of those characteristics that you highlighted in this empirical study, the characteristics that are associated with high rates of return. So we're talking right. about things like low price to book value, low price to earnings, low price to cash flow, low price to net current assets or to the previous stock price, high dividend yield, small companies, which tend to have higher growth rates and are more likely to be acquired. And then, as you were saying, this pattern of stock purchases by insiders. So, I mean, it's worth highlighting that these things are fairly, are fairly obvious. They're fairly logical. They do work over time. And yet, as you say, 
there's this torture that there are these long periods where it doesn't seem to work. And so we've just gone through, what, about nine years where this style of investing hasn't particularly worked. It's it's done okay, but it's lagged massively. How do you keep the faith during these very difficult periods where you're applying a you're applying a strategy that's disciplined, that's prudent, that makes logical sense, that you believe in, that you know works in the long term, and yet it just sort of defies logic and just tortures you for year after year? Yeah. And I, now, if we did an update of these studies, I don't know, and we looked at them year by year, I don't know what the, the result would be. It used to be the case. Well, it was the case with a number of our own track records. And we've had, we have some data where we've looked at, I think, one year, three year, five year, and 10 year rolling returns versus index, versus an index return, versus a benchmark. And it used to be the case, it may still be the case that in about 70% of the 10 year rolling periods, Tweedy Brown's stocks would beat the benchmark, would beat the, the particular benchmark, uh, and 30% of the time not. Now, you can flip it over and say, and look at the, at the benchmark, and you could say that the benchmark was only beating the Tweedy return in 30% of the uh, rolling 10-year periods and was lagging in 70%. And uh, so it's part of it is, is the way you flip these things around. <laughs> But I think that for me, none of us knows exactly what's going to happen in the future. And if it was as simple as saying that the S&P would just continue to be outperforming value as much as it has, we'll, we should all just give up the value school and just do that. But I think that, that that's an unlikely thing. And again, going back to you're investing your own real money, your own wealth, and do you want to take that bet or do you want to stay with something that makes a lot of sense to you and uh, has worked on average over a long period of time? And again, it's real money. It's real money. I could go out and buy Amazon stock or I could have, you know, could have bought it much, much higher. The growth rate is fabulous. It's a fabulous business. But is the price right? It just, uh, I, I don't have that much confidence in being able to project really, really high rates of, of growth going far out into the future. I just have a hard time with that. I have much, much easier time understanding what we do. And again, myself, I'm investing my family wealth and I, I don't want to lose it. And I do the best I can. I think that's always been one of the striking things about Tweety Brown is that you guys as insiders have enormous amounts of money riding on the same things as your shareholders. And I, I remember looking most recently, I think it was up to about $1.3 or $1.5 billion yes. of assets from you and your colleagues. Correct. In, yes. So there's a tremendous alignment of interest, which also seems to me that when we're looking for someone to manage our money, you want to know that your manager is eating their own cooking. So if they're wrong, at least they're suffering alongside you. Exactly. Exactly. It's shared misery. Yeah. But it should be pointed out that your returns since 1993 for this flagship fund, I mean, you, I think when I last checked, it was about 900% was the cumulative return. And it had beaten the MSCI EFA index by hundreds of percentage points. So, I mean, for me, the lesson is that in the long run, this works, but you've got to actually be able to handle the pain of multi-year periods where you look kind of foolish and out of touch and you start to wonder if it doesn't work anymore. And most retail investors can't do that. Exactly. 
No, they can't. It's just not how people think about it. They don't have sort of the faith or the basic idea that you own a bunch of things that are worth a lot more than their current market quotations and that you think that things will work work out well, work out well for you, that you'll make money. It makes sense. Seems low risk, uh, but they don't they don't have that faith. People just want those excess returns. They want to have a bigger pile of wealth over a period of time that comes from excess returns. You know, obviously over a long period of time, one, two, three percentage points of annualized excess return results in what most investors want over a period of time, a bigger pile of money, a bigger chunk of wealth to do whatever they want to do with it at some future point in time. Joel Greenblatt said to me that the thing that makes it possible to outperform in the long run for him is the fact that he's prepared to handle these periods of underperformance, that he can handle that pain. And so it just seems like you have to have this deep-seated understanding of why this works over time, buying cheap stocks, then the discipline to stick with it, and then the kind of ornery, contrarian, stubborn personality to be able to go your own direction when the herd is going in the other direction and is making a fortune overnight in Solana and Ethereum. Right. And so it requires a certain type of weirdo. Is that- It does. And especially, I think, a weirdo to do it commercially. <laughs> it's a business because you do have people abandoning you uh, in the, the lousy periods. That's just part and parcel to being in the, in the business and doing what you do with your own money for other people. Uh, it doesn't always work. It doesn't always beat the market. It doesn't always generate what everyone wants, which is excess returns. Do you find that emotionally painful when shareholders are leaving you? Because, I mean, obviously it damages your business, but you're also aware that they're hurting themselves and you've been trying to help them and you're ending up having them lock in the bad periods returns and miss out on the rebound during the good years. Well, you get used to it. (laughs) It's been a good business. I'm very, very grateful to have been in the in the investment management business for a long time. I'm terribly fortunate, uh, but that, that's just what it is. You can't beat an index fund by being one. You have to be different. And uh, we've done studies. We did a twenty. I think it was a twenty-seven year study where we took all equity mutual funds that were listed, I guess, by Lipper. And at the starting gate, uh, you know, let's say for every hundred of those equity mutual funds, there were only about fifty at the end of the twenty-seven year period of time. And of those fifty, about I think it was about maybe twenty-five or thirty percent had beat the S and P five hundred over that twenty-seven year period. And the the ones that beat it tended to beat it in about half the years. It wasn't a real, real consistent type thing. They had good years and bad years but they still developed a bigger pile of money than the index, at least pre-tax, at least pre-tax, yeah. I think it's important to kind of hammer in these points that we've been making because I, I hope some people out there are listening and are thinking, oh, okay, so I get what works in the long run. At least this is one path up the mountain that's really good. There are other ways to make money and, and do really well. But this is a tried and tested way that Tweety Brown has been doing for decades, that Ben Graham was doing, Buffett was doing. We know this works, but we also know how painful it is and that there are periods where it doesn't work. And so I'm hoping there are going to be some people in our audience who are like, okay, this clicked, I'm going to do it, but I know that it's going to be painful at times. Well, that's right. And it depends on, there are certainly 
periods of underperformance, but you're still making money. You're just not making as much as the other person, the other woman or man who who bought uh, the particular benchmark that's doing better. But, but we've uh, also just seen people having their money just absolutely vaporized with cryptocurrencies and the implosion of FTX, Sam Bankman-Fried's crypto empire, and all the hot tech stocks that people were buying on the assumption that it would go up forever. So in a way, this is a perfect, this period we've just come through is a perfect example of the dangers of being in a hurry. Or the, uh, I guess the ARC performance has not been the best. Yeah, Kathy Wood's yeah. fund. Yeah. Yeah, right, right, right. Indeed, indeed. You, you can lose a lot of money in these things that uh, previously were so exciting to people. And you've lived through this a bunch of times, right? You lived through it with the Nifty 50 in the 70s, with the Japanese bubble in the 80s, with the dot com bubble, now with this latest crypto and hot tech stock bubble. If you were to draw a moral for regular investors on how to stay out of trouble, and avoid these kind of manias so that they can succeed over the long run. What would you say? What advice would you want to impart? Well, I would say that uh, I don't think it makes a lot of sense to to leverage. You know, I think you're more able to be at ease and stay in the game if you're not uh, if you're not hocked up, if you're not leveraged. And if you buy stuff cheap as well, right, with a margin of safety. That certainly has, has been, <laughs> obviously, that's what we, we like to do. But can I guarantee that over the next five years, the S&P 500 will be worse than what we're doing? I can't guarantee that based on, on the history of winning periods and losing periods. I think it will, but I can't, you know, you got to be realistic. You can't, you can't predict those things. You also said to me once, John, that our real goal wasn't necessarily to beat the market, although we hoped we could and we ended up doing it. You said the real goal was to make money in a pretty low-risk way. And that seems to me a hugely important point. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Because we're so obsessed with this horse race aspect of whether you can beat the market and add value. But for most of us, actually, staying in the game and getting decent returns and surviving, that seems to me a pretty good goal. That's my goal. <laughs> yeah. I mean, Ben Graham in security analysis had a sentence said an investment operation is one that offers safety of principle and the prospect of a satisfactory return. He didn't say a return that beats a market cap weighted index such as the S&P 500. He was really looking at making money, doing things that would likely not lose money because they possessed a margin of safety. And But that's not the commercial business of managing money in a way. It's really, it's uh, consultants looking at how, how did you do the last three years versus a benchmark the last five years. Going back to inception, they don't necessarily look or pay much heed to that. It's really hard to market satisfactory, right? But actually, is. for most of us, that a satisfactory return. I mean, I always sort of feel like if I could get something approaching 10% a year over time, whether it's after tax returns, before tax returns, or even just me adding to the pot through my savings so that I get to 10%, I'm going to be okay. I mean, it'll be fantastic over decades. Yeah. yeah, right. Especially if you don't pay too much taxes. Yeah. So I feel like this emphasis on satisfactoriness, avoiding disaster, and staying in the game is vastly underrated. 
We need more clients like you. <laughs> I'll send over my, uh, my, my money tomorrow, John. Uh, unfortunately, there's not enough of it. <laughs> well, I'm certainly that type of client at Tweedy Brown. One thing you told me when we last met that I thought was a really interesting insight into your personality is you, you were talking about how safety conscious you were temperamentally. And you said to me, when, whenever I'm looking at a new car, the first thing I look at is its crash test results. And you told me that you'd bought a, a Lincoln town car because uh, you saw that it would do pretty well in a crash. Can you talk about that? Sure. The Lincoln town car was one of the first cars that had airbags. So <laughs> it was kind of, I wasn't really interested in having a Lincoln because a Lincoln was sort of a, a showier kind of a car, but it, it did have that that aspect. So I thought, oh, what the heck? I'll I'll be a little showy, and maybe it'll save my life because it's got got airbags. But absolutely, we just happened to have had two of our cars totaled because we're right on the beach in Naples, and we had a big flood surge, and our cars and other neighbors' cars in our condominium association are parked underground, and so we lost two cars and just had to buy two cars recently. They were both cars that met the Insurance Institute for Highway Safety designation, Top Safety Pick Plus. This ah. is the highest designation, the best crash test results, the best rollover results, all those things. So we we narrowed our list just to uh, to uh, heavier cars, typically heavier cars, not, not uh, Cooper Mini or something like that. Well, what did you get, John? Uh, my wife got a uh, Hyundai Santa Fe, and I got the uh, more of a luxury car uh, in that by from Hyundai. That's called the Hyundai Genesis, which for taking our daughters or for taking some friends out to dinner, they sit in the back seat. It's got more leg room. It's it's the South Korean equivalent. Uh, it's sort of the South Korean uh, limousine car. It has a hundred thousand mile warranty. I think ten year. I know it's got a great warranty and I've had, and it, I think J.D. Powers has said good things about the reliability of it. If I were writing a profile of you, John, I, I would be sort of really thinking about this as a metaphor for how you live your life, right? Like it's, it's safety conscious, it's durable, it's frugal, you know, it's not super flashy. Well, it's relatively frugal. We used to buy only used cars, but, uh, <laughs> but it's frugal in terms of of capacity, of spending capacity, of means. I've always lived below, fairly well below my means. You once said to me you also had never borrowed any money, that you didn't have mortgages, you never owed anyone any money. Can you talk about that way of living as something that enables you to be more resilient as an investor and to, sure, to deal with sure. the stress of these periods of challenge? Absolutely. Going back to the uh, example, the tax loss carry forward company, Paul Hardiman, when I had tried to convince a friend of my father's, a very frugal man who was an investor in stocks and farmland and a little a tiny apartment buildings and stuff. Mr. Clark wrote me a nice letter about the not getting it over your head, not being too greedy, not being too too self-confident. And uh, he was absolutely right. And that that was, as I described before, kind of a, a cold shower, a shock to the system, a wake-up call. So there was that. And there was also a, a letter that I wrote just after I'd started my, my little investment partnership when, when I was driving in the airport limousine at night to support myself. I wrote a letter to Warren Buffett 
And I'd read this great article in Forbes magazine about the Buffett partnership and about his long run investment returns, which were phenomenal. And I had read an academic paper by these two finance professors, Miller and Modigliani. And they had this idea that if you bought shares of a company with low leverage, with let's say no debt on the balance sheet, that investors of their own accord would uh, would go out and, and offset that. They would borrow money that the company itself maybe should have should have had on its own balance sheet, but they would borrow money to own the stock. So it was kind of they would merge their capital structures, the capital structure of the owner, call it an individual, call it a holding company with the non-leveraged stock. So I thought, well, maybe Buffett was using this Miller Modigliani idea and using a lot of leverage to buy into very low leverage bargain stocks. And so I wrote him a letter and he was very nice to respond to me. He said, no, I've never, never thought of it that way. And I just think that having margin is a bad idea mm. <laughs> and you want to stay in the game. You don't want to get tapped out. And so I think that the resilience that not having debt makes one more at peace with reversals, with the down periods, with things that don't go well. And you want to be able to stay in the game because it's a long run game. It's a game of averages. And uh, for me, it just made things less stressful. I knew that, well, my stock portfolio is way down, but I don't have any mortgage debt on the house. I'm living below my means. I'm not living paycheck to paycheck. I've got some reserves. I've got some cash. It just was for me a less stressful way to live and a less stressful way to live in the volatile field of investing where you do have ups and downs. You do have stocks that don't work out. You do have all these kinds of things. So for me, it's been uh, good behaviorally, but I could be a lot richer if I had put everything you know, in, into stocks. I've always had, for a long time, I've had probably too much cash. But uh, I don't force it. I don't force it. Uh, like if I can't find something I like, and I do have a diversification constraint, I will just, you know, I'll just have more cash. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. If you're looking for the right franchise concept at the right time, an iFlex Stretch Studio franchise is the business for you. iFlex is the newest franchise concept from the founders of the Joint Chiropractic. With over 200 licenses already awarded to our regional developers, there's never been a better time to own an iFlex franchise in your market. An iFlex Stretch Studio franchise offers its clients the best in professional-assisted stretching for one affordable price in one beautiful location. Even the Mayo Clinic says stretching can increase flexibility and improve your joints range of motion helping you move more freely prime regional developer opportunities and franchise locations are going fast don't miss this opportunity to get into this rapidly growing health and wellness business from the founders of the joint chiropractic find out more today call 888-994-3539 or visit iflexpodcast.com call right now 888-994-3539 or visit iflexpodcast.com Kyle, you're connected with a ton of different investors and portfolio managers, and you're just really in the know on a lot of these things. How do you keep up with all the day-to-day headlines for your portfolio companies? Yeah, so I used to have a ton of issues with this, and that was until I started using Yahoo Finance. Really? What's so great about it? So Yahoo Finance is awesome. I have my whole portfolio entered, and I can easily see all the top headlines to keep up with the recent news. And each day, you get an overview of the major global events that might be moving the market. So I'm ready to easily pounce on any opportunities that come my way. 
What else can you do on Yahoo Finance's platform? They also have a number of cool features, including a tool that lets you link all of your investment accounts, analyst ratings, and independent research, as well as the ability to create customized charts. Well, now I know that the audience is really going to love this one. And I actually see they have 90 million monthly active users. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com. The number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. As many of you know, I love studying businesses and networking with business owners. The more I've studied businesses, the more I've realized that starting and scaling your business is easier than ever because of companies like Shopify. Did you know that Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S.? Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business, from their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify even helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. What I personally love about Shopify is that it's the turnkey solution to kickstart and grow your business, and they are totally committed to giving you the necessary tools to succeed as a business owner. Plus, they have an award-winning customer support team there to help you every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash WSB. That's all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash WSB now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. That's shopify.com slash WSB. All right, back to the show. Can you talk a little about diversification? Because your strategy with diversification is also pretty distinctive, right? In the, in the international value fund, I think you have about 55% of the portfolio in about the top 20 positions, but at the same, which seems relatively concentrated, but actually you own about 99 stocks when I last looked for the third quarter. And so it's actually a really interesting mix of being concentrated and diversified. Can you talk about your view of diversification and how, how to balance that desire to outperform by being fairly concentrated and the importance of diversifying so that you actually survive? Well, I think that the value strategy statistically is more likely to prove itself out and add value if you've got a kind of a statistical diversification, a lot of large numbers, a lot of different bets. So we've we've normally had fairly large number of bets now, but sometimes we let, the, like, like a Heineken, we'll let these things roll along and, and they might become 4% or 5%, but we're comfortable with the business. We're comfortable having that kind of concentration in that sort of a business. In a number of portfolios, we're, we're fairly, we have fairly large bets in, in Berkshire Hathaway, just because we've owned it for a long time and it's grown faster. It's the value, it's compounded better than other stocks we've owned. But uh, I think it's the statistical law of large numbers make the strategy strategy work. And also, it just seems less risky. When I looked at your latest report to shareholders, which I think is as of 
the end of September, the investment committee that you're part of was writing the report said the opportunity set being presented to us today in non-US equities is one of the best we have seen in well over a decade. It's obviously become pretty unfashionable to invest outside the US. People have kind of lost faith and and in some ways international investing has been a bit of a disappointment for many years. I was looking at what the statistics for the International Value Fund, which has, you know, outperformed by a very large distance, but it's still it's only returned something like 8.1% since 1983, which is very good when you compare it to the average fund, which is about 5.4%. So a big margin of outperformance. But when I look at that and I think, wow, so all of these people who own foreign funds, the average foreign fund were making five and a bit percent for the last 30 years. It's really hard to keep faith in diversifying overseas. And yet we know historically that it's really important. Can you talk about this issue of whether to diversify internationally and why at the moment it seems like a particularly smart idea to you, given the opportunity set? Well, I'd say that in terms of the track records, international investing has had periods in the past where it's performed better than the U.S. market. But you're absolutely right about the the more recent past. Now, I'm not, my partner, Bob Wyckoff, would be much more up to date on these different track record periods for uh, international versus U.S. stocks. But clearly, there are a lot of cheap uh, non-U.S. stocks and uh, you know, good, good prospects based on low valuations. Low valuations have historically tended to predict higher returns. You also had a very interesting statistic in that report, which you'd done a study or were citing a study that said from 1969 to 2022, the U.S. market outperformed internationally. And I think it was like 55% of 10-year rolling periods. So there were these long periods where overseas stocks beat the S&P. And it seemed like the lesson was just that, that you didn't want to be all in on just domestic stocks. Is that fair to say? Well, I would say for us, it's, we look at it as a different way. My deceased partner, Chris Brown, used to say, well, we, we like to invest outside the United States because it just gives us a bigger shopping aisle of bargains. And from the standpoint of a U.S. investor in our international fund, Tweedy Brown International Fund, because we hedge the, uh, cur- the currency risk, a, a large part of the currency risk, not all of it, but a large part of it, we're equating a business in terms of the U.S. return, plus or minus the interest rate differential on the hedging instrument to a local U.S. return. So basically, it's just it's another place to find bargains, and we're finding quite a few there. I was interested to see that Tweedy Brown International has something like 16% of the portfolio in the U.K. and in companies like Diageo and GlaxoSmithKline and BAE Systems and Unilever and Tesco and the like. And obviously, as an Englishman, I'm particularly invested emotionally in this question. But there's a sense when you read the newspapers these days that the UK is a basket case, that Brexit was a disaster, and it's politically dysfunctional. The best years are behind us. And I just thought that was really interesting that it's more than three times the size, I think, of your China investment. Can you talk about why these sort of fairly mature markets like the UK and Switzerland uh, where you also have a big stake, are actually surprisingly attractive hunting grounds for investors like you. 
Well, a number of them, a number of those stocks just are playing cheap on the statistics. And uh, I mean, there's a company, SKF, in the ball bearings business that we've been, we bought some shares of and insiders have been buying it with their own money. And uh, I don't know, the stock's really cheap on, on the numbers. So it's just, uh, again, it's the shopping aisle idea and bargains, the typical bargain that we're buying new, fresh today, rather than a company like Heineken or Diageo that we're, we've been holding, but they're not, they're undervalued if somebody bought the company in an acquisition, but they're not super, super undervalued. And the owner earnings yield, you know, if you own a stock at 20 times earnings and they pay, the company paid out 100% of the earnings, you get a 5% return. It's not your 10% return that you're you're looking for, but you probably get a, get some growth in addition to growth in the value of the business. So on a total return basis, you do okay. But uh, again, the, the most recent buys would be things that are typically quantitatively cheaper. And in many instances recently have had this insider purchase signal. So they're they're attractive to us. And you're not really making top-down calls, big macro calls. You're just finding stuff that's cheap. Not we're finding stuff that's that's cheap. We're not. We may, if you ask privately, different individuals on the investment committee, their opinions about some of these things. They they're undoubtedly we would be different, different ideas or different nuances. But uh, the overriding idea is still just to buy bargains uh, throughout the world. China. And it so happens that commercially, our international fund serves a purpose by being concentrated in that. Now, I personally, I'm in the international fund. It's one of my largest mutual fund, Tweedy Mutual Fund holdings. But I also own individual U.S. securities and, and uh, a fairly large position in the Tweedy Brown Value Fund, which is a global fund. But in the international fund, it's 90% non-U.S. securities. I'm not sure whether that answers the question. China also obviously is a particularly interesting case, and it's striking that you don't have a huge investment in China. But on the other hand, you own these stocks like at least the last time I checked from the third quarter, you had Alibaba, Tencent, Baidu, a lot of so so a trio of these companies that have been hit by the government's very heavy handed regulation and the slowing economy and all these fears about geopolitical conflict. And I, you know, I have a vested interest here because after talking to Charlie Munger and Lou Simpson, who I know you were friends with about Alibaba, I bought Alibaba and I'm down 60% so far. But I'm curious how you think about these companies and how you consider all of the people who are saying, no, no, China now is uninvestable. It's a great question. Now, I don't own Alibaba. I did own one. I own a few Chinese stocks myself. But uh, I think I think it would be better if you asked one of my partners about that. Um, they could, clearly, in terms of the the analysts following those companies, they see them on the numbers as being very very cheap and still major businesses with growth prospects in China. But uh, you, you know, you've got to you, you do have a, a very good question with Mr. Z and his most recent uh, pronouncements and uh, the, the way China seems to be tilting. In my recent interview with Tom Russo, he just said, look, this goes on the on the too hard pile. And he said, I, right. I was wrong about Alibaba. It's, it may do well, but it was just too hard. And he just said, I, I should have listened to Buffett when he said, you don't need to jump over high hurdles. 
I think there's some wisdom in that. I mean, I, I always, for myself, when I have a, a choice of buying something or not, my framework is comparisons. And uh, let's say I find something, I don't know, like Tesco. I own Tesco personally in my own account, and there've been there've been insider buying in it. It seemed pretty low price earnings ratio, pretty good dividend yield. They own uh, a lot of their own stores in fee. They're not all leased stores. So there's, there's a value in the real estate. I felt very comfortable with that. I'm less comfortable personally with uh, the tech companies that, that the dictator of China seems to be going after. I mean, I'm, comparison, do I, have, do I have to buy in my own account Alibaba? I don't have to do that. I can buy, I can buy dull old Tesco. Now, which one will do better? Uh, I don't know. I don't know. Obviously, uh, the firm thinks that these these companies are worth worth holding, and they do value low valuations are part and parcel to behavioral aspects. People feeling negative about things. So it could these these stocks could be great. It would be arrogant and obnoxious of me to say that they won't be great. That they're you know, so I don't know. I do own a few shares of a company uh, uh, in China, Haitian Group, which. Uh, and that's plastic, another one where there was insider buying. I yes, you yes plastic yeah. molding equipment and stuff. And that was CEO buying. And, and I think that's a little bit more of a, a business that might be off the radar as a business that the Chinese Communist Party wants to attack. Yeah. Yeah. So I don't know. I don't know. But it's interesting because comparisons, comparison, always compare. Yeah. And you're also setting yourself up to do well on average over time with a portfolio of stuff that's cheap. So you don't need everything to work out. You just need on average to be right over time. Exactly. Exactly. The way I think of it is on a group basis, you own a number of these things. You'll do okay. You'll make money. You'll have a satisfactory return. You'll sleep at night. You have an, an, an inherent theoretical see-through see-through the business versus the stock price margin of safety it's a more grown-up and realistic way of investing than you know rolling the dice on uh chinese tech stocks and growth companies with you know no profits and cryptocurrencies that aren't backed by more than air it's it's like a little bit more realistic and subdued and less intoxicating well william I, i hope you're right Yeah, me too. I wanted to switch direction a a little. And it struck me years ago when when I spent the day with you and again today that I always had the impression, um, rightly or wrongly, that you were happier than a lot of the very successful investors I've encountered over the years. And you had a kind of glow about you. And I, you know, look, this this podcast and my book are called Richer, Wiser, Happier. And I, I wanted to get a sense from you when you look back of What's contributed to you having a pretty happy life? Like what, what's actually, what have been the most important factors for you? Well, I don't, I don't know anything about comparative happiness. Everyone's an individual. Yeah. You don't, you know, you don't know their happy day to sad day ratios and stuff, but I think I'm, I am pretty happy uh, most of the time. Uh, and I think that uh, I'm, I count my blessings. I'm grateful for my good fortune. I'm grateful to have the the luck of having great business partners. I was reluctant to do this interview because I don't. I think that uh, 
most people feel that way about interviews with me, John. You're a good company. Okay, anyway, <laughs> well, you're a great interviewer. <laughs> Thank but, you. Uh, but I think the spotlight should be on the, the whole firm. The firm is a team. I'm just one uh, wheel on the on the bicycle, on the tricycle or the car and the employees and uh, you know, all there's it's all these things have contributed to my luck and a good fortune in life. I'm very grateful for that. I'm very grateful for being able to work in a field that is intellectually stimulating to me, enjoyable. I read the newspapers. I read the New York Times, Wall Street Journal. Occasionally, I read the Financial Times. Not not every day, like a number of people in my firm, but. Uh, there are always things that were they're just so interesting. The things that are are quirky and defy, you know, things that you didn't think would happen that that did happen. And so there's there's a, a sense of humor about reading or irony about reading the newspaper. Surprise things that uh, you know what's happened to Facebook in terms of the relationship to to Apple and and uh, changes in their growth rates and you have this guy going into oh, you know stream world the meta yeah, the metaverse yeah <laughs> so, you know, yeah or Elon Musk going to Twitter and going to Twitter it up so massively it's it's riveting to watch it's riveting it's so interesting so, so there's there's a, a great fun in reading the newspaper with with an economic orientation, a philosophical orientation. So that's a blessing. I think that if if I'd been married to a woman who was an enormous spender, you know, just wanted to buy the fanciest car or this or that, uh, it would have been a very tense relationship. It wouldn't have worked. My my wife is very content with, we've always felt wealthy, always, because we've always lived below our means. And when we were young, we, we ate in cheap, uh, cheaper restaurants and and now we we spend more, but uh, we have more to, more than we can spend. So I think having a a partner who's supportive of your work is uh, is a blessing. And you've been married almost fifty years, right? To Cookie, almost, yeah, 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 right. The next June second wow. will be the fiftieth. And you've she's, had you've she's had put up with me. That's an amazing I mean, thing. I mean, in a way, I'm not I'm not the best uh, kind of a husband because I have been a, a fairly hard worker. I mean, you know, through enjoyment or maybe obsessiveness, I've enjoyed the I've enjoyed the work. So I will I will often do things on the weekend that are are work oriented and business oriented reading and stuff. So I don't have as many diverse interests as uh, a lot of human beings. And I think you know. That's not necessarily a positive in every in a marriage, you know, quality time. You strike me as someone who's always been profoundly captivated by this game. Even though you like the money and you like watching your money grow, like there's a mm-hmm. certain there's a certain joy in watching the money compound for you. I yes. I don't think you were ever really at a certain point, it seems to me like you loved the game more than actually getting rich. Is that fair to say? I think that's fair to say. Yeah. You know, what's another so many millions? And, you know, you reach a point where it really is, you're just acclimated and interested in in the game and the process. I think where I am now, personally, I do have a real like of the people at Tweedy Brown. I'm not as large a shareholder in, in Tweedy as, as I used to be, but it's I've still got something. It's uh, it's not an, an enormous part of my my wealth. But uh, I still have some skin in the game. But I really like the people, and the business has not had a great 
last few years because of the underperformance of the value style, even though our largest pool of capital has done extremely well compared to other international investment managers. But the absolute returns, have, as we both know, have not uh, set the world on fire compared to uh, competitive returns, such as in index funds that where the fees are much lower than our fees. But anyway, I'd like to see the firm continue for another many decades. Yeah, 102 years. <laughs> yeah, like I like to. I think Brown Brothers Harriman has 200 year history. Wouldn't it be nice if Tweedy could have have that and continue doing sensible things with other people's money? So it I'd like the to firm me- to be in, in ETFs. I think the firm should be in ETFs. We're exploring that. Hmm. Uh, ETFs have great. Under current tax rules, have great tax advantages for taxpaying investors. I think that makes sense. It's serving uh, our clients, our taxpaying clients who are like me and Will Brown and uh, Tom Schrager and Bob Wyckoff and other people in the firm. Obviously, we're taxpaying investors. So it's, uh, again, this community of interest. So I'd like that. And we're exploring other things having to do with the insider signal as a very, very good uh, pond to fish in. Yeah, the insider buying. The other thing that struck me very much about you when I was thinking about various reasons why why you seem happier than most great investors to me, it seems to me you structured your life in a way that really suited you, where you were telecommuting decades before it was in fashion, before the rest of us became remote workers. And so you were dividing your time between your home in Florida and New Jersey, and then you were building a home in Pennsylvania and then to be near your grandson. And then, you know, you had the office in Sanford, Connecticut. And that strikes me as a really important part of a successful life that you, you're living in a way that suits you as a little bit of an independent self-learning machine who likes a bit of space. Like, is that fair to say that you structured your life in a way that's worked for you? Yes. Yes. I think that is fair to say. You you hit it on the right on the head, right on the nail. Yeah. I think no, that, I did. that's I, I mean, I, I, I like working in a quiet room, working at things that interest me. I have other interests uh, that have come come with having some wealth. I've got some philanthropic interests that uh, provide a little diversity. You were very involved with charter schools last time we spoke. That's one of my favorites. I've always thought that they, well, I, the charter schools that I've been involved with have been in Trenton, New Jersey, which is a very, very uh, poor area. Uh, most of the people are either African-Americans or people of Hispanic descent. And New Jersey has report cards for all the public schools and charter schools. So you can see what percentage of the students are proficient in math and reading. And, and in Trenton, the public school results are absolutely atrocious. Five, you know, like schools where 5% of the kids were proficient in math or 10% proficient in reading, just abysmal. Mm. And the amount of uh, spending per pupil at those schools is among the highest in the country. And typically right now, I think it's around 24, 25,000 per student and the results stink. But i invested in, in three different charter schools. The last one, most recent one, has been a great success, Foundation Academy Charter School. And you know, it's it's when all schools in New Jersey, all public schools and charter schools are ranked on 
educational results, educational outcomes for the students, academic results, it's in the top 8%, 92% are lower academically than this school. And all the kids are selected through lottery. Mm. And I just feel I'm getting a good bang for the buck supporting this school, helping kids. Really, all the seniors last four or five years have been admitted to some some college, some further education. So I help support support that. I feel very good about that. It's a great uh, social return on investment. It's a great social return on investment. I've been blessed with a with an oddball education, but but a good one, an efficient mm. one for for what I wanted to do. But I I think it's just a, a rip off that these kids are not not getting a good education in the public schools, and in a way. Sh- there's a political aspect to it. Also, the teachers union yeah. is a huge contributor to Democratic Party uh, politicians that negotiate wage agreements, contracts with the teachers union. And uh, anyway, that's just what it is. That's, that's yeah. politics in New Jersey. Yeah, I, I think everywhere. My son, Henry, teaches in a charter school in New York City that's part oh. of the network that Joe Greenblatt's set up. And so I think about this a lot, but it's a- Oh, is that right now? It, now it's success not, Academy. Not the success, success yeah, Academy. Yeah, that's, that's where Henry oh, Eva, Eva Moskowitz, yeah. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. wonderful work. Yeah, my God. it's an amazing- I mean, I look at someone like Henry- Good for you, your son. Well, thanks. I mean, I'm a proud father of a kid who, you know, I, I paid for four years of his Columbia education, and then he, he goes to become a, a teacher, and I couldn't be happier with the investment. I mean, I think those, what a, those what a wonderful thing. Yeah, those what kids are lucky to, to have someone like that teaching. But but I'm well. Thank I'm, him. Thank him for me for his service to our our society. Thank you. I'm a very I'm a very biased father, but uh, but, <laughs> you but be so, very proud. Thank you. I they could behave terribly, and I'd still be very proud of them. Uh, yep. Unconditional love. <laughs> exactly. Speaking of unconditional love, Quakerism has obviously been a really important part of your life. And I last time we met, we chatted about this and you had talked about how I think your wife had introduced you when you were probably in your late 20s or early 30s to Correct. The, the Quaker church. And I was reading last night a little bit of Faith and Practice, the book that you said had really kind of had a huge impact on you early on. And I I was struck, it said, recognition that God's light is in every person helps us to overcome our apparent separation and differences from others. It leads to a sympathetic awareness of their needs and a sense of responsibility towards them. And I, I wonder if you could talk about how some of these ideas that you drew from Quakerism have enriched your life and kind of been a, a really important guide to you on how to behave towards others, how to behave as a money manager, how to behave as a husband or father, because it's obviously been a really essential part of your your life and thinking about how to live. I'm really impressed with that you read that. That's, that's so interesting. It has had a, a big influence. I mean, the, the idea of that of God in every person, um, we're all children of God, that that idea is very, very appealing to me. And it's, it sets up a way of trying to live your life, of trying to behave with other people, of trying to think of people as equal under God, and um, not necessarily as people who have equal outcomes in life or any of that, but just a kind of a a common humanity. So, I think that uh, it has has helped me in uh, trying to deal with other people, uh, with hopefully deal, be an okay uh, partner with my partners sometimes disagree, but with respect and with humility that uh, 
my opinion could be way wrong. <laughs> you know, I don't have any perfect track record, any of that kind of thing. Um, trying to live with in one's family with the, those ideas. Yeah. And also the Quakers, the Religious Society of Friends is both communitarian and at the same time individualistic. The founder of Quakerism, George Fox, would say to his followers, what canst thou say? Meaning, what can you say as a human being, as an individual, as a unique creature, one of one of God's children? What can you say? Meaning, uh, sort of speak your truth, be honest, try to be honest and truthful, and try not to fake it. If you're faking it, you're he, he called it your. It's a mask. It's uh, you want to be try to be honest. So that's something that has had an impact on me. I'm no perfect person, but these. Quaker sayings and mottos, I think, have been very useful to me. When we were having lunch a few years ago, I, I was looking at my notes again over the last couple of days from our lunch and farm meeting at your house, and we were talking about this subject. And one thing that you said that really struck me at the time is you were talking about forgiveness as well. And you said, yeah, trying to forgive yourself to realize you're not perfect. And that was really striking to me because I sort of, for me, I tend to be fairly self-flagellating and I'm, I'm always struck by all of the many ways in which I'm failing to live up to the values that I espouse. Uh, can you talk a bit about that idea of forgiveness and self-forgiveness? Well, I've always liked the idea of imperfection. <laughs> and, oh, good. <laughs> and and uh, I just think that uh, humility under God, that none of us are perfect creatures. I often, when my, when my wife or somebody does some dumb little thing, I'll say, well, you'll be perfect in that next 12 months. <laughs> 12 months from now, you, you'll, you'll finally be perfect. And uh, I think that that attitude applies to, to oneself. I mean, you, you try to do the best you can, but uh, a kind of a recognition almost of God's grace, of kind of your Count your blessings. Look at the. Try to look at the glass half full, but uh, don't whip yourself too hard when you make a mistake or you're not perfect or you say something that was stupid or dumb and you regret saying it. Try to get over it. Move on. There's a beautiful story. I think of some old Zen monk that I'm no doubt gobbling who said something like, um, "Last year a foolish old man. This year no change." And I, I always <laughs> love that, right? Because, yeah, I mean, I... Right. And there's another one. I think somebody said, God laughed. And you can laugh a lot at, at uh, all the things that have to do with human behavior, human nature. All, all. It's, it's, a, it's a, If you approach looking at the newspaper with a sense of humor. I remember Tom Gaynor, who grew up Quaker, actually. Um, oh, did he? Yeah. He, is he I, the guy at Markle? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, He's a yeah, yeah, wonderful sure. guy. And, and actually, he, like your wife, I think, ended up becoming Episcopalian, if I remember correctly, but is right. deep, deeply it. influenced by Quakerism. He once was talking to me about you know, how deeply flawed humans are, and he said something about human foibles and flaws, and then just chuckled uproariously. And there was something kind of lovely about it, that he wasn't appalled and disgusted by how flawed we were. He was kind of amused. There was a sort of gentle... Mm -hmm. A gentle awareness of our right, a sort of a, a an ironic chuckling of uh, yeah, yeah, the humor in life. I feel like I take things too seriously, so I was. I think I was struck when you said that about trying to forgive yourself and to realize yeah. you're not perfect. So that helped me. So thank you. 
And, and well, I think it's rational too. It's rational. We, I mean, it, it's just plain true. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I also really liked when I was reading about Quakerism last night and also looking back on my notes from our earlier conversation, this idea that you're connecting to the light within in this very direct, unmediated way. So you don't need a priest, a rabbi, a monk, a bishop or whatever. It's you trying to connect to this kind of transcendent part of yourself. And I thought there was something kind of lovely about that. Can you say something about that? Because it seems very distinctive, this idea that there's something in us that you don't need mediated by an authority, by, a, by an institution. Indeed. I mean, I, I remember the first time I ever attended a Quaker meeting for worship, just by uh, struck by that, by the equality of it, that there was no, no minister. There was no, this is the way you have to do it. This is our our checklist. This is, we have all the answers. There was none of that. And it was an idea of, of, I call it direct dial to God without a priest or a minister. And I just, I liked that idea. And I like the idea of sitting in silence. And sometimes someone will speak and have, you'll just be moved by it, a remarkable feeling. And I remember, maybe it was Warren Buffett said one time that, uh, you really don't need to get a PhD in theology. You can you can do pretty well with the Ten Commandments and reading the Sermon on the Mount. <laughs> you know that uh, people throughout time, or maybe not everyone, but a lot of people have had a, a spiritual sense, uh, a sense of things. It could be a, a sense of awe about about beauty, about natural beauty, or. Uh, or a great conversation that you had with someone, or all kinds of things. You can you can have a connection that is remarkable and uplifting with uh, someone at the cash register at the supermarket, or with a you know, someone who's who's server at a restaurant. Or, I just I don't know. It's just kind of a. Uh, but I've often had uh, experiences in in a meeting for worship that for me have been very very moving and I and, and strange and strange kind of like. Where did that come from? Or what's going on here? <laughs> yeah. I have that a lot. When I was younger, I mean, I've, got, I've done a sort of grand tour of all of the spiritual positions. So I, I was a relatively conservative Jew as a kid going to synagogue because mm-hmm. I had to. Then I became kind of agnostic. Then I became atheistic. And then I became increasingly spiritual when I hit 40. And it became a much more important part of my life over the past 14 years. So you you know that I've been wrong over the years because I've had every position. But mm-hmm. I I I think one of the things that appeals to me is the sense of mystery, the sense that there's just stuff we can't really fathom. And absolutely, yeah. And that to me is kind of beautiful. But it goes in a way. It's awesome. It is awesome. Yeah. Yeah. The sense of deep mystery that there are things mm-hmm. you can't understand why certain things happen. But this, I don't know. I wonder about this sometimes because when I started to interview great investors very seriously for my last book, Richer, Wiser, Happier, I had this kind of prejudice that I assumed that most of them would be so super rational that they wouldn't have very serious spiritual lives. And I was surprised to find how many of them really did. And it's a, I, I don't know if I'm articulating this well, but it seems there seems like a paradox here, right? That in some ways, the investing world, it's such a rational game. It's so empirical. And yet there's this other thing where you just have to say, yeah, I just don't know. There's something so mysterious that I can't fathom it. Do you think about this at all? Yes, yes. And I think um, 
you know, working as, a, as an investor, you're dealing with thinking about things that could, might happen in the future, obviously, is not knowable. It's guessable, but it's not knowable. So you have sort of a framework of faith and anticipation of rational anticipation of surprise of things that are that can turn out quite unpredictably quite unlike what you thought in, in earlier so there's kind of a mystery and awe in that and uh, I think that there is or is not depending on the, the person this sort of leap of faith or or you can say well why not have some faith why not? You could be wrong, yes. But uh, I think that uh, for many of us human beings, it's it's useful, it's healthy, it's uh, and for many of us, and it certainly seems for you, it's natural. It, it's you come into a, a place of naturally being willing to have a bit of a spiritual sense in your life and not just saying, "Well, I I can't prove it," so I'm you know. But I, I respect that too. Yeah. And for me, I I don't know, there's a, I remember studying pragmatic philosophy a bit after Bill Miller turned me on to these people like William James. And they had this idea that, well, they would talk about ideas as being like forks and knives, you know, they have utility. And so they would say, it's not like these things are empirically provable in many cases. I'm no doubt distorting what they say, but it's directionally correct, as Tom Gaynor would say. And so you can choose your own idea depending on whether it's helpful to you. And it seems to me that the idea of thinking that we live in this very mysterious world where we don't really understand that much, but there's something really beautiful that's bigger than us, that's a pretty good idea. And having trust that things are going to work out in some way and that it's a... I would have rolled my eyes at this in the past. When I first interviewed Sir John Templeton 20-something years ago, I found his faith really irritating. And oh, now, you did. Oh, oh yeah. Did. I've, I've loved his books. No, yeah. it drove me crazy back then. And then a few years ago when I was reading one of his books, I just, I blushed and I was like, oh my God, that was what he was trying to teach me all those years ago. And I was too stupid and too arrogant to listen to him. And so, I don't know. I, I just think it's a useful, it makes you happier and is useful to believe that you live in this, in this kind of benevolent world where there is a kind of order. And if you behave in a certain way, things are likelier to turn out well than if you behave badly. And I, I don't know whether any of this is, I, I mean, I remember talking to Ed Thorpe about his views on religion and he said, no data. And uh, <laughs> yeah, I, yeah right. there's no data. But on the other hand, I think it kind of, a lot of these beliefs and principles, they work. And I, I like the fact that from what I've read of the Quaker movement, that it's not institutionalized. It's more your personal experience of how these things apply in your life. I don't Indeed. know if that makes Indeed. sense. Indeed, it is described as an experiential religion without a creed. Very nice. So is there any I would final... Say that, I would say the current creed of a lot of, a lot of people is climate change. Yeah. I think that, <laughs> that was one of the things that Tom Gannis said to me, is that it became increasingly political. And I think that was yes. one of the things he struggled with. And I remember reading something that well, you me had, too, me too. Yeah. About that. Interesting. Yeah. Well, you had written something about, uh, it was a sort of autobiographical sketch that you'd given to someone within the Quaker church that I, I was reading yesterday. And 
You talked about how part of this political movement, in a way, was an alienation with the business world and this sense that the commerce was somehow bad or tawdry. And Immoral, I, right. Yeah. yeah. Can you just talk about that? Because I think that's such an important idea, right? This hostility towards business and capitalism, which I think gets reinforced by all of these shows like Succession and Billions or, or reading the papers and seeing the FTX scandal. There's a sense that business and capitalism have become kind of corrupted. And my sense is that your view is very different. Extremely different. In my estate planning, uh, I think my largest, uh, other, other than my family, my largest recipient will be, if I die tomorrow, American Enterprise Institute. I believe that strongly in the good that capitalism does. I mean, obviously, it employs people it's creative, new products, new innovations, improvements on what had been before that benefit all of society. I've always had that idea of the of a sort of a smile on the face of capitalism, of the moral rightness in general of capitalism. Of course, there are a lot of there are crooks in business. There, but I just think think that that's a truth and that you can, most businesses, I think, are honestly run. If they're not, they lose their employees, they lose their their customers. There are constraints on the behavior of businesses that I think are, are, are good. So I just don't understand that, uh, that anti-business aspect of current Quaker society, at least on the on the East Coast of the United States, as I perceive it. Well, and not um, just Quaker society, there's a huge... Oh, well, it's, Everywhere, this sense, I, I think that, the, and, and it's not helped by things like the FTX scandal, this sense that if, you know, when people are talking about, if Sam Bankman-Fried was talking about taking his wealth and giving away billions, and then you're like, well, actually, it was sort of stolen money. I mean, who knows what really happened? We'll find out more in the coming months. But it doesn't, it gives you a sense that uh, there's a lot of hypocrisy and greed. And so, I, I don't know, I like the fact that when I look at your approach of having made money in a kind of prudent, fairly frugal way, trying to do a decent, responsible job, liking your colleagues. That seems to me a, a better way to do capitalism. And it's, it's not that capitalism is good or bad necessarily. It's like there's a better way to do it. I think that capitalism in general has, as I just said, has a very positive yeah. effect on, on society itself. I mean, you know, Bill Gates is going to give away most of his fortune, but I think his the Microsoft products are enormously useful. Mm. You know, I use Excel all the time and uh, Word and some of these these things. So I I uh, I just think that's true. I think that there's a perception by many in in society that allocation of re- more and more resources to the government is morally the way to go. And there are nice nice things about safety net welfare programs. Uh, and I support a safety net in society. But I think that from my standpoint, if you have a shifting gradually of more and more resources from the more creative and more efficient and dynamic private sector to the government sector with aspects of inefficiency, politicization, bureaucracy, et cetera, and no, no real incentives to be more efficient, that it's, a, it's kind of bad long run for society. And that's a very big philosophical view, but it's one that uh, that I happen to hold, and I could be all wrong. Two of my three daughters don't, don't agree with me. I mean, they they're not in my uh, political camp. But. Yeah, I'm sort of agnostic about politics in general, but I do think this sort of knee jerk sense that capitalism 
is kind of tawdry and vulgar and selfish is it underestimates the degree to which we rely on companies to do uh, incredible, innovative, dynamic things. Absolutely. Yeah. Is there any last word you'd like to leave us with before I finally let you go, John? Well, sure. I would say that William Green is an excellent interviewer (laughs) with probing questions that make you make one think. And uh, I've appreciated the opportunity to to uh, have this interview with you Ah, uh, to to know you to know you. I felt that way also uh, when we met, I guess, seven years ago. Thank you. I, I, yeah, it was a memorably enjoyable day for me. And I came away thinking not only, oh, he's a, he's a really good guy and a really good investor, but it struck me that your kind of joyfulness and I, there's mm-hmm. a beautiful photo of you in the great minds of investing, which my friend, Michael O'Brien took. And I remember showing it to my daughter and she said, she, she must've been about 14, 15, uh, well, probably 15 at the time. And she said, he's a happy guy. And it was, a, it was nice. There's a kind of, you have a kind of a raised eyebrow and there's a kind of, a, and, well, and, I know I need a, I need an uh, eyebrow lift after my cornea. Uh, but I liked it. And, and I think, you know, I've had several people ask me questions in the last couple of years about whether you can be a hugely successful investor and have a good family life and, you know, have some degree of balance and the like, and, you know, you and Tom Gaynor, and a few other, uh, Nick Sleep, a few other great investors I've interviewed give me a sense that it's, no, it's possible not to leave a trail of destruction, and uh, but actually to have a happy and, and somewhat balanced life. Although I, I do think you've still got to be kind of maniacal to be really extraordinary at anything. I think, yeah, I think having focus and uh, obsessiveness probably is a long run edge. <laughs> yeah, I think it's hard to avoid that. Uh, yeah. The, the disability of, of obsessiveness. <laughs> It's a gift, maybe. I think the fact that you you profoundly love this work and this research, it's such a strong advantage. Like you're you're not, uh, you know, you've never tired of it, right? It just is inherently interesting. The actual yes. game, it's a huge edge. Uh, yes, John, I'll let you go. Thank you so much. It's been such Thank a you. delight chatting with you, and I hope to do it way before seven or eight years elapses again. We have to do it more often. God willing. <laughs> uh, absolutely. Uh, okay. I'll second that. All right. Thank Take you. Care. Lovely to have see a, you. Have a great day. Thanks Bye so now. much. Bye. All right, folks. Thanks so much for joining me for this conversation with John Spears. I'll be back very soon with some fantastic guests, including a great investor named Fred Martin, whom I wrote about at length in my book. After that, I've got interviews lined up with an array of great investors, including Ray Dalio, Guy Spear, and Tom Gaynor. In the meantime, I really wanted to take this opportunity to thank all of you who listened to the podcast over the last year. My very first podcast episode was published back on January 1st, 2022. That was a conversation that I had with Ray Dalio when I was a guest host on the We Study Billionaires podcast. A couple of months later, in March 2022, I launched the Richer, Wiser, Happier podcast, which also airs on the feed of We Study Billionaires. Initially, I thought that I'd maybe do six or possibly 12 episodes of the podcast, but it's been such an enjoyable journey that I've never stopped, and I now hope to keep going more or less indefinitely. One reason why I've so enjoyed hosting the podcast is that I love having these in-depth conversations with fascinating guests. But what's also made this experience deeply rewarding is that I've received so much warm and enthusiastic feedback from you, the listeners. So thank you truly for making this such a life-enriching adventure. 
I'd also really like to thank my partners, Stig Broderson and Preston Pish, who co-founded the Investors Podcast Network about eight years ago and have built it into what it is today. They're not only great entrepreneurs and excellent podcast hosts, but exceptionally kind and decent people. And I'm just very lucky to have met them and to count them as my friends and partners. Thanks also to my fellow podcast host, Kelly Fink, who traveled to New York to help set up my equipment a year ago and to answer all of my foolish questions about technology. Finally, I really want to give a huge vote of thanks to the wonderful team in the Philippines that works tremendously hard behind the scenes to edit and produce these podcasts and to make everything possible. This includes Bianca, Cyril, Camille, Anna, Jadidia, Lee Rich, Noel, and Christine. I'm really grateful for all of your hard work and heroic patience in dealing with me while I try to figure out the world of podcasting. In any case, thanks again to all of you for listening, and I wish you a very happy and healthy holiday season. I look forward to being with you again very soon in the new year. Until then, take care and stay well. Thank you for listening to TIP. Make sure to subscribe to We Study Billionaires by the Investors Podcast Network. Every Wednesday, we teach you about Bitcoin, and every Saturday, we study billionaires and the financial markets. To access our show notes, transcripts, or courses, go to theinvestorspodcast.com. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decision, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by the Investors Podcast Network. Written permission must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.